It's so good to be able to be at a place like this. I know that there's a significant football game taking place tonight. Understand that it captures the attention of not only our country, but yea, many nations around the world have attention riveted tonight on the Super Bowl game. And yet, you and I serve a far higher power and we're interested in making sure our top priority is Him. It is good then to see this number here tonight to appreciate the priorities that have been set by this group of men and women, boys and girls. And it's our desire here at the Pippin Congregation, as motivated and led by our elders, to lead us in that pathway that certainly concludes an everlasting life. Tonight, as we give some thought to a lesson I've entitled, God in Wristwatches, we'll be giving some thought to some, I hope, interesting questions. And this next slide will move in the direction of what one of those primary questions will be. Isn't it amazing, as you consider the following with me, you and I often live our day-to-day -day life in such a way that we give such attention to time. We, we're, we wear wristwatches so that we're on time at our appointments. We, in fact, use those wristwatches to help us plan and make arrangements throughout the course of the day. And not only that, we use them to help us ensure that we're always not late, but that we are at our destinations, the appointments, whether they be at the doctor or perhaps even other places, certainly including our jobs. It occurred to me to give some thought, though, to those middle phrases. As often throughout the day or even throughout the week as we put the words together, on time, he or she is on time, or that event is on time. The bottom question is this, is God ever late? Is the God whom you and I serve and worship, what does the Word of God have to say about Him being on time and about His recollection and His pursuit of that which you and I would describe with those words? Let's take a study tonight, a panoramic one, and give some thought of some occasions in the Bible in which we find some interesting things about God's choices and decisions with respect to time. This next slide, I've simply entitled that very word, Time. Isn't it amazing as you and I open the Word of God to the book of Genesis that we find in the opening two chapters a rather prolific setting forth of the thing you and I call time. After all, isn't it true that on days one and two and three and on up through six, the God of heaven did something particular. He acted with respect to 24-hour intervals of time. Not only that, you notice that there's something rather notable about the fabric of what he brought forth. There appears to have been no such thing as time prior to the events of Genesis 1, but suddenly now there's the fabric of both space and time. Events that take place reckon not only where they're located, but when. And as we noted a moment ago, our God, the great and marvelous and awesome God that he is, he set in action and in course this thing known as time. Please notice verse 14, in fact, of that chapter in addition to that. Isn't it true that we find on day four, God made the sun and the moon and the stars, and it's described as that greater light that rules the day and the lesser light that rules the night. And as He fashioned them, that verse goes on to say that they were made for days and for years and for seasons. Now therein is a reference to days and years, again, intervals of time that are known to the human family in our day. 
And yet God orchestrated the celestial events of this universe in such a way that they can mark off or tick off those elements of time. It seems clear then that God intended the human family to be benefited by the reality of time. We could use it to mark off that which is known as a day and that which is known as a year. In addition, you might appreciate that God often made specific statements then about events in time. About the middle of that slide, could I call your attention to that statement in Exodus 12? There's something rather fundamental highlighted for the ancient children of Israel. Again, prior to that time, they had a calendar that they went by, but God orchestrated from that point forward their calendar in such a way that the first month coincided with their exodus, or rather I should say the events surrounding that Passover and their exodus from Egypt. This is to be the first of your months. As you and I think about the calendar, we've just finished the first month of this year, the month of January, and as you and I reflect on the 11 months that will now follow it, we have, as all of that is set forth, this interval recognized and known as a year. And in so doing, look at what else might be said about it. This God whom we serve, although we have found that He has orchestrated time for the benefit of the human family, He Himself is not subject to it. He is at limited by it. He is not one such that those confines and bounds of time operate with respect to Him the same way as it does with respect to us. I would ask you to think about this. In Exodus 3 verse 14, we in fact reference that as a part of the lesson this morning. And we noted that as God spoke to Moses through that burning bush, events and references were given relative to, I want you Moses to bring my people out of Egypt. And as, a, as that discussion went on, did you notice what name? God gave to Himself. When you and I reflect on that, it's really rather fascinating, isn't it? Moses' first question was, they're going to ask me who sent me. Who am I supposed to say has directed me to come and tell them? And God says, I am that I am. That's all you need to tell them. I am. Isn't it amazing then that this God that we serve, notice it isn't that I was and it's not that I will be. I am. He has always been. He is now. And He shall always be. The continuous and ever-present existence of this great God. In Psalm chapter 90, verse number 2, in the midst of those psalms in which David was reflecting on the brevity of his own life, it was in that context. Later on in that chapter, verse 10, that's when we learn about Three score years and ten as the lifespan. And we also learn the admonition of verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. But all of that follows that pronouncement of verse 2. It is God who from everlasting to everlasting. Infinity both directions. He's God. I suppose in light of all of that, the one last passage that no doubt comes so quickly to mind is in the heart of the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3 verse 8, with respect to that interesting and rather innocent sounding statement, we learn, speaking of God, that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. 
You see, time is not reckoned with Him in the same fashion of limitation and character that it is for you and me. It is for that reason the next comment rather quickly comes. We understand the sentence that comes to you and me, the sentence that you and I reckon as death, is that transition in which we no longer reside in this flesh, but shall reside, of course, elsewhere. And hence, we number our days, and some number of years thus reckon them. All those great Bible characters. And our mind rushes to contemplate with such excitement those noble men like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Solomon and David, Joshua and a whole host of others. And yet every one of them have passed the scenes of their time upon this earth and have now proceeded elsewhere. Isn't it amazing? That limitation doesn't exist with God. He'll never die. He'll never age. He'll never reach a point of having deteriorated. That's not characteristic of Him. Doesn't that give you and I some excitement as we contemplate heaven? Entering ultimately and finally in a place where, quite frankly, there is a tree one more time of life. And you and I can partake of it everlastingly. Never will there be deterioration. Never will there be the aging process taking place. But upon entrance into that place, Revelation 21 and 22 remind us that there is no curse. And not only that, there is no death nor sorrow. And so as you and I think about time, it's fascinating to notice our limitation currently with respect to it, but God's is not. And so at the bottom of that slide... It would be, though, too far a statement to say that just because God isn't bound by time that He is not interested in it. Let me illustrate with several verses. And as you consider these in the matters of your own mind, we'll not read all of them, but could I ask you to consider them? Again, our point is this. Although God Himself isn't bound by time, He is keenly interested in it. In Numbers chapter 14. The children of Israel, as you and I know, by that point they were journeying toward Canaan. They had left Egypt some two years behind them. They were almost there. They had arrived at the southern boundary of the promised land. And now, as spies had been sent out, ten of them come back and exhibit tremendous unbelief. And not only that, the rank and file members of Israel chose to follow them. As a result of that sentence of unbelief, as a result of that choice of refusing and rebelling against God, God said, for a total of 40 years you're going to wander in this wilderness. Our God, you see, was interested in the reality of what time would mean for them. They now were going to wander for 38 more years. Long enough, you see, for all of those present then, those men guilty of that rebellion to die in the wilderness, borrowing, of course, Joshua and Caleb, they would enter that sweet land. Our God, you see, made a pronouncement relative to time, didn't He? Consider yet another one. In Jeremiah 25, verse number 12, centuries now would pass from that time in Numbers 14, but on this occasion the children of Israel were such that the kingdom had been divided. That southern kingdom of Judah... By this time, we understand God had sent His prophets to them because their lives 
were not in harmony with the truths of heaven. They had chosen to follow false prophets and idolatry. They had begun to act and live in ways that were not consistent with God's truth. God said, there's a mighty pot in the north going to boil over. I'm borrowing in part from Jeremiah chapter 1, admittedly. But that pot was representative of Babylon. And when they come, they're going to take you into captivity. And it won't be for an arbitrary amount of time. Seventy years. Seventy years. God, you see, was keenly interested in pronouncing with respect to the time that they would be in captivity. Isn't that amazing that God, though He isn't bound by it, there was something about that element in time that was very critical to His will. Not only is that true of the Old Testament, it's also true of the New. At the bottom of that slide, would you consider with me John chapter 2, verse 4? As you and I, again, think about time and God's interest in it. By this point, Jesus, the marvelous Son of God, had been born, of course, and now He had grown to the point that he is in attendance at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And while there, he makes a comment as his mother had urged him with respect to the fact they're out of wine. Jesus said, Woman, mine hour is not yet come. What did the Lord mean by that? Here was Jesus relatively early in his earthly ministry, and he asserts, My time has not yet come. You and I as Bible students know exactly what that means. Jesus understood very well that there was a timetable. There was a designated and specific time by which He Himself would go to the cross and that could not be hurried up. And it was not proper to try to race it forward. It would happen in consistency to the Old Testament prophets. It would happen exactly in the year when it was supposed to. Mine hour hasn't come. I believe each of us can be impressed with the unfolding events of time and how that as they took place, it was in accordance to the infinitely wise timetable of God. That statement brings us <clears throat> to John chapter 7, verse 6, when one more time later in the gospel account known as that of John, the statement is made, Mine hour hasn't yet come. This time, the Lord was in conversation with His own earthly brothers, His half-brothers, I should say. And during that conversation, they again were trying to hurry Him up to go to the place of celebrating one of the feasts of the Jews. Mine hour hasn't yet come. Jesus, you see, understood very well. And doesn't that give you and I an even greater love for Jesus? The cross didn't just happen without His knowledge. In the spring of A.D. 30, you and I know the Lord again was born in about 4 to 5 B.C. And as He grew into adulthood, imagine the year 18. Jesus knew it would be 12 years and He'd die. When the year 21 came, He knew nine more years is all He had. And there would be the agony and the terrible circumstances surrounding the cross. The year 26, he started his public ministry. He chose those apostles, and for the next three or so years, he preached the unsearchable riches of goodness and greatness of heaven. But all the while, he knew what was soon going to happen. What if you and I knew 
the excruciating agony that would surround our death on a certain day. Can you imagine the horror that might well encompass our mind leading up to it? We might drive ourselves crazy. When the spring of A.D. 29 came, he knew there was one more year. And what a year it would be. The number of things developing in that year, and suddenly the time would come for the turning of the new year, the celebration of the Passover, and he had only a few days left. Even then, he still could say, my hour has not yet come. As you and I consider John chapter 8, verse 20, and later John 17, verse 4, statements and references highlighting again the, the keen appreciation of heaven and of the blessed Son with respect to time and its events. To think about all of that then begins to take us back to our earlier observations. As you can see on this next slide, our initial question that prompted our thinking this evening was, is God ever late? Let's first consider this slide. Think about with me a number of instances in the Word of God in which God was right on time. Now may I say He wasn't early, but from the human standpoint He was right on time. I chose to invite you to consider some of these with me. The scene unfolded for you and me in Exodus chapters 13 and 14 is certainly much like this. Israel had by virtue of those plagues been released from Egypt. And as they proceeded that journey, they arrived on the western boundary of the Red Sea. And here they were, the Egyptians pursuing behind because they had changed their mind. But the Red Sea was before them. Did you remember with me the circumstances of Moses' description to them? You may remember they proceeded to cry unto God because they were in a very, very difficult circumstance. But you see, God was right on time. For He told Moses, stretch out that rod over the water. And He did, and the water parted right on time. And the children of Israel, you see, were allowed to proceed through on dry land. Their redemption from those pursuing Egyptians was very clear and unmistakable. In addition to that one, what about Gideon and the record in the closing verses of Judges chapter 6? God had selected this man Gideon to be one of the judges of Israel. By virtue of that selection, however, Gideon was not so convinced. And you and I remember what he did. Wasn't it the case that he wanted God to give him a sign? And so tonight I'm going to put some wool out. And I want you to cause it to do only on the wool, but not on the land around it. Gideon got up the next morning with haste, and he wrung dew and water out of that wool because God had answered his prayer right on time that night. But the very next night, Gideon went so far as to say, God, I want an additional sign, so tonight I'm going to put the wool out again, but I want you to make the wool dry and dew everywhere around it. And God did it. For Gideon arose the next morning and quickly observed that wool was as dry as could be, but yet there was dew everywhere around it. God was right on time in the answering of that plea and that request of Gideon. You might notice example number 3. In Daniel chapter 3, and then in a moment we'll look at Daniel chapter 6. But here were these three Hebrew children, to, know, to you and I, known often as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And these three, of course, had refused to bow to that image that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Even when the music played, they refused to bow. As you and I recall, the time came when the king was very much angry with their stubborn refusal. At least that's the way he saw it. And so he made the determination, if you don't bow, I'm going to cast you into the fiery furnace. We remember the integrity of their, dis of their response because they refused to bow. Into the furnace they went, but they were so convicted, they knew God could deliver them, and He did. God was right on time with respect to that fiery furnace. Three chapters later, Daniel found himself in a lion's den due to his commitment to God even to pray, even when the edict of the Persian government forbade it. Perhaps it's fair to say that one more time, God was right on time in that lion's den that night. Isn't it fascinating to notice perhaps two more, both taken from the New Testament. We stated earlier about the death of Jesus and how that, that occurred exactly when, of course, the prophets had affirmed that it would. But you and I also remember there were additional statements Jesus in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, said that three days I'll be lifted up and I'll be raised up. That happened right on schedule. When our Savior was put to death that Thursday afternoon, sure enough, come Sunday morning, as you and I would reckon it, the first day of the week, the women came to the tomb and found it empty. And as the events of that day unfolded, Jesus appeared to several that day, affirming and declaring once and for all that He had been resurrected. And that proved Him to be the Son of God, but our God was right on time. Notice that God wasn't early, nor was He late in all those examples. What about the day the church was established? Our God was one more time right on time, wasn't He? The Old Testament prophets had exactly foretold when Pentecost was to be, and it was that 50th day as reckoned from the Sabbath of the Passover celebration, according to Leviticus 23, verses 15 and following. And sure enough, on that moment, we find the Jews assembled in Acts chapter 2, and the church began while they, those apostles were assembled in Jerusalem, just as, of course, it had been foretold that it would. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. It's impressive to notice that our God has been on time on so many crucial and critical circumstances. You might notice on the next slide, though, some additional thoughts concerning this point. Have there ever been times when God's late? When at least by the reckoning of human chronology, God was not on time? I'd submit to you that answer seems to be yes. Remember, our appreciation is based on human standpoint. Consider some of these examples with me. The book of Joel in the Old Testament unfolds for you and me, and yea, for people throughout all the ages, a very serious circumstance. In fact, it was so serious that that book unfolds before us, the terror and tragedy that surrounded it. A plague of locusts was brought by the God of heaven upon the people. And these locusts were not any ordinary old locusts in the sense that they consumed everything. So severe, so dire was the famine that followed, 
so treacherous and difficult was the circumstances that came with it. No doubt many were crying unto God, where are you? Why haven't you heard and answered our prayers? We're suffering here. Our people are starving. In fact, the sacrifices, we don't even have animals. Our animals have died and we no longer have sacrifices to offer. God's late. I'm sure that was the sentiment in many people's heart. What about another one? In Jeremiah 42, verses 1 and following, the people of Jeremiah's day were so insistent in that they wanted some answers. And so they came before Jeremiah and they said, We want to talk to God. We want you to give him a, give him a message and bring us back that which He has to say to us. God said, you tell those people to wait 10 days. I'm not going to answer them now. You tell them to wait 10 days. From the human standpoint, I'm sure those folks thought God's late. We want an answer now. But God wasn't going to answer now. Our God is infinite and too great and He won't be hurried up. Look at yet another one. In John chapter 11, verse 21... I wonder how Mary and Martha felt when their brother died. And you and I remember it well. That word had been sent to Jesus, but He didn't come immediately. And ultimately, four days had elapsed by the time our Savior arrived. I'm sure there were many people. And in fact, even Martha at one point said, Lord, if Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Was God late? Did he not check his wristwatch? You and I know very well what the answer to that. From the human standpoint, God was late, but God wasn't late on His time frame. Surely as you and I reflect on what Jesus had to say about that circumstance, didn't He say in the early verses of John chapter 11 that this will produce the glorification for God? Jesus, you see, waited and He came when it was the fitting and opportune time by the chronology and the timetable of the great God of heaven. Not only that one, but what about Mark 5, verse 21? When Jairus' daughter died, you remember the scene how that a man, a father who was beside himself with concern, came and pleaded with Jesus, My daughter is ill. Won't you come and help me? All of us who are fathers or mothers... You can imagine if your child was on the verge of death, how insistent you might be if there was someone who could help. And you can only imagine how the sentence, of course, followed when word finally came, don't trouble the master any longer. She's gone. How would you feel? How would your countenance and mind fall when a circumstance like that arrived? And yet Jesus said, don't be afraid and don't weep. He, of course, arrived at the place where she was and he took the parents as well as three of his disciples in and he raised that little girl to life. Many would say that he was late, but God wasn't late. Perhaps one final example. Throughout the ages, countless deaths of faithful Christians have occurred and sometimes they've been the result of persecution and they've been the result of forces levied by governments or otherwise against them. At the very least, forces due to the devil himself. 
In Revelation, we learn in chapter 6, particularly when the fifth seal was opened. In that seven-sealed book, when the seal that was the number fifth one was open, you and I remember how carefully and how powerfully it was stated. The souls underneath the altar were crying, How long, how long shall it be before our blood is vindicated? Many say, many no doubt would say, God's awfully late. The blood of these saints has now been 2,000 years or more and hadn't been vindicated yet. The points that you and I can take, it seems as though from the perspective of humanity, there have been a lot of times God's been right on time, but there's also been some occasions when He's been late. What are some lessons we can take from these observations? And we'll use these to close our lesson. Some observations, some lessons, some points that can hopefully be encouraging to you and to me. First of all, only from the perspective of humanity is our God ever late. God isn't late. When events take place, you and I should be trustworthy to the point that we understand that He in His infinite wisdom always knows what's best. And He always brings things about in accordance to His will. It is in that regard I would again direct your attention to those statements in John 11, verses 2 through 4. When it was the consideration of that death of Lazarus, Jesus knew that the man was dying and He knew that he was dead or soon going to die. But He said, this event will be for the glorification of God. Notice it was pinpointed to the mind of Jesus. He waited exactly the right amount of time and He arrived at exactly the time in which it would redound in the glory of God. May I submit to you that with respect to your life and mine, as faithful children of God, may we never think that things are haphazard, but rather that there's an overruling power guiding things in relation to this world and all that's in it. Isn't it true, in fact, in relation to the end of time, that there is a day unknown to us, but known very well to God, when the events of time are going to be brought to a close? Not anybody on earth knows when that'll be. None of us. Mark 13, 32. In fact, while here in the flesh, even Jesus didn't know it. But yet Jesus said, My Father does. Isn't that a highlighted fact that in His infinite providence, things are under His control and He will move them in the direction and the accomplishment of that which is His will? God is never late. But... Observation number two, the emphasis that then must be in your life and mine is this one. If we can't control the events and affairs of powers and nations, doesn't it mean the necessity in us of earnest and fervent prayer to one who can do it and who will do it? I've listed for your consideration Job chapter 40. In verses 2 and 8 of that chapter, regardless of the element in time, God highlighted in the person of that man Job. Job, of course, found himself in a very hard circumstance. As the book opens, he loses his possessions, or at least virtually all of them. His children are, are killed in very strange and unusual ways. And Job is left behind. 
Even his wife provides very little encouragement, Job 2 verse 9. And yet as the following chapters unfold, we find a man who wanted some answers. And above all other things, Job wanted God to tell him something. God, how did you let this happen to me? I've served you. I've been faithful. I have never purposefully and with deliberation chosen to ignore or rebel against you. And yet you've let my children to be taken, my possessions to be taken. All Job wanted was to have some conversation with God. But yet stated in that was an element that God needed to reprimand him of. He needed some additional encouragement to always trust in God no matter what. I would assert that's not bad advice for you and me because we don't know what the future may hold. Individual circumstances may come to your life or mine. Maybe they relate to health. Maybe they relate to family crisis. Maybe they relate to great and difficult things perhaps even bordering on that which can shake a person's faith. But through it all, no matter what time may hold for us, may we, like Job, be ready to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job thirteen fifteen. Maybe in light of those admonitions, what about number three? The thing that's the most important... And you and I have noticed that time and again with respect to these events in time, God was right on time in those first examples we noted, and yet by human standards He was late in that second set. But what was the most important and what guided, of course, was His will. And the appreciation that's ours to look at it through the lenses of heaven. What is the will of heaven with respect to this? And sometimes, frankly, that could be challenging, can it? As we earnestly pray, may we always pray that His will be done and not our own. Isn't that what Jesus set before us by way of example in Matthew 26? There it was in the very previous night before the cross, and yet He prayed, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. And if you and I will continue to pray those kinds of sentiments and to try to bring by virtue of our study of His Word and the matters of our life into compliance thereto, our prayers will always be motivated that same way. Finally, in number four, a restatement of that point we made earlier. God is never early or late by human standards. And that takes us back to the lesson text of Galatians chapter 4. In the heart of that Galatian letter, as Paul addressed the church, churches of Galatia, wasn't it true that to them, he said, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And that phrase, the fullness of time, is such an expansive thought. It's again with the designation that at the proper time, at the right moment, Jesus was born. And in the years that followed and at the right time He gave His life, it was all in accordance to that marvelous chronology of heaven. You see, God wasn't early nor was He late in something as pivotally important as that. And finally, the closing thought of our lesson tonight. 
the admonition that surely would come with this to you and to me must be then the question, what about the occurrences of those moments of my life and yours? Are we using them wisely? With the time that God does a lot to us, understanding that our time in this earth is obviously brief. May we with wisdom seek to redeem that time, walking every day circumspectly in the words of Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Certainly all of that begs the question, are you and I faithful Christians? Are we devoting ourselves in determination and in conviction to His service? Because God isn't ever early or late, but He demands and He will bring about His will in accordance to His plan. Tonight, are you a Christian and am I? If you're not faithful, why not come back to your first love? If you have become a Christian and you have proceeded to walk in ways that are not consistent with the truth of God, may we note that to this point you have then way, become wayward in light of your appreciation of that matter of time. The wristwatch that you and I may wear, though we may use it to help keep us on track with regard to the events and the timing of the day, a far greater wristwatch is the one that God wears. Making sure of the affairs of this whole universe are ticked off according to His will, and may you and I strive to walk in harmony with that wristwatch. If you've never become a Christian, don't you want to? Aren't you excited about the thought of being a child of heaven? To be one whose name is in the book of life and one who can look forward to a place where there shall be that tree of life yet again. And you can participate thereof and eat the fruit thereof and timeless and eternal shall be the result. This evening, if there would be one or more in the audience and we would be in a position to assist, you would be honored to invite you to come and we would exhort you to do that. And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.